Welcome to the New Books Network. Kia ora te Welcome everyone uh, to the New Books Network. I'm your new host, Edamon, to um, the New Books in Australia and New Zealand Studies. Um, this is my first time doing this, so please bear with me. I'm doing a fantastic book today. It is written by Jared Davidson. Uh, the book's name is The History of a Riot, and it is a micro-history of a specific event in Nelson. So, welcome, Jared. Kia ora, Ed. Kia ora, Tato. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so um, I found the book uh, really intriguing and very interesting because other books that we read in history are um, uh, huge, several pages, but this just went into a specific time in uh, in in New Zealand's history. So before we get into that, um, how did you get interested in this subject? And if you can enlighten us with some of your background as well. Sure. This book actually came out of uh, an in-between time. So I was in between books. Um, I'm a labor historian and an archivist, and I just finished writing Dead Letters, Censorship and Subversion in New Zealand with Otago University Press. And I'd looked into the history of a riot um, in Nelson in 1843 briefly, and I thought, okay, why don't I dedicate um, a little bit of time to digging deeper into this particular history? So that was the genesis for the book. I'd seen it mentioned in various histories. Um, Being an archivist, working at Archives New Zealand, which is the government archive, there's a rich source of uh, petitions and letters from Nelson, from the New Zealand Company in the 1840s. And so I decided, yeah, I'll I'll dedicate, um, actually took about a year, to, to focus on this particular particular event. So it drew on my background as a um, labor historian, interests in history from below, um, working class struggle, and, and also some of my previous books, I guess you'd call them biographies or collective social biographies of, of workers on the margins. And this, this event just seemed to tick all the right boxes. So being in archivist. Now, I always imagine archivists, one of my friends uh, was an archivist in uh, in Christchurch, and I always imagine someone with a monocle and a, and just there's dusty files everywhere. Um, how does that um, help you in writing these uh, texts over the time? Sure, that's a really common perception of archivists, and um, <laughs> it probably surprises people when they rock up to the reading room to see a um, a young guy with um, tattoos and and black jeans and things like that. And and um, it's it's partly the reality of what we hold. Um, these are artifacts, as stories, and objects and items from the past. And in popular culture, there is that kind of dusty librarian. Um, image of archivists, but actually it's a really thriving and interesting field to work in. The the past archives of stories really impact on the present um, and on our future too. So being an archivist is, is a dream job for me and having access to 
some really rich stories um, has has really benefited my my historical practice. Um, to go back a little bit, I never trained as a historian. I, I actually have a background in graphic design and printmaking. And it wasn't until I was doing some printmaking for the Labour History Project for the centennial of the 1908 Blackpool strike that I started getting really interested in, in the anarchist movement and radicalism and, and working class unions in New Zealand. And, and I went to the archive to look into my first book, Remains to be Seen, and I've been hooked ever since. Yes, uh, it seems to me a very interesting uh, um, occupation because um, for my master's recently, uh, I've been delving into the website called Past Papers. And, and that's only a specific part of uh, history. But it is intriguing and it's like a YouTube rabbit hole that you go in from one news story to another news stories to different newspapers within the past paper in a specific period of time. So I completely understand. It must be a fascinating and exciting um, uh, line of work. Um, so the the story of Nelson. Now, um, just to set up the stage, um, in 1843, what was Nelson like? Sure. So the Tiriti Waitangi had been signed in, in 1840, and it was a, a race against time in terms of the colonial authorities in the UK with this colonizing company called the New Zealand Company, who had actually sent um, a boatload of settlers out to Wellington as the, as the treaty was being signed. Um, and Nelson was a part of the New Zealand Company's other settlements. There was another one in New Plymouth as well. So in Nelson in 1843, the scene is uh, a small port town that's steadily filling up with um, immigrants who have left England mostly, um, some from Wales and Ireland and Scotland as well, and they're arriving by the boatload. We're talking thousands of people here. And the idea was is that these working class um, immigrants would find work be employed by capitalists and the sufficient price of land, what, what um, Edward Wakefield called the sufficient price, would kind of replicate an English class system, but not to the extent that working class people couldn't break out of being workers. You know, eventually they'd be able to buy land and become proper settlers. The problem was that a lot of the capitalists never came out. They were absentee landowners. They preferred to sit on the landed capital of land back in England. Um, and and so you had all these workers arriving in Nelson to, to very little work. One of the reasons why Nelson was so popular as a place to settle was that the company had guaranteed employment in its handbills across Great Britain advertising this scheme. And so when all these workers were arriving finding themselves without work, with little food and supplies, with a, with a land that was not a land of milk and honey. It was barren and pretty um, unfertile. Uh, the workers were put on relief schemes. They are basically employed to build roads, dig ditches, and, and earn, earn their rations via the company. 
And that's mm. where the problem started because the company as a capitalist venture wanted to reduce those rations and these workers wanted to survive. And that's what's led into the revolt. So the, uh, the promises that were made um, in the advertising uh, of the, uh, the heaven of New Zealand, um, what specific um, promises that you fi- found through through your research were, were were there pamphlets? Were were they showing them that the life would be fantastic, like we like we see real estate ads? It, was it something like that? Yeah, there there was a little bit of that. There were handbills and advertisements and newspapers and stuff. But the the company actually had a a pool of agents, and these agents would go out into villages and parishes and often draw on their personal links within the community to to sell New Zealand. And so those agents were kind of given a mandate, I guess, to talk up the scheme. And some of those agents maybe went a bit beyond what the company had <laughs> ideally yeah. um, promised. Um, and and in, in some cases, you see, as soon as things start to go south in Nelson, the company's writing back to the agents to say, right, you've got to stop promising this. Uh, it's, it's not working out this way. <laughs> so, yeah, it was a mix of um, published pamphlets. And we're talking about an era of publishing as well, but also yeah. those personal community links. And that's one of the things I wanted to do with this book was to trace these working class people back to where they'd come from and, and look at that a little bit deeper as well. Yeah, these there's there are fantastic stories um, within um, within the book. When when you delve into, you start getting the idea uh, of um, what life they were leading and what were their dreams and hopes when they landed in in New Zealand. So, uh, what before coming here, who who was a person ideal to come to New Zealand on this boat? Who, who, who were the type of people who decided, okay, I'm going to uproot my life and go to New Zealand? Sure. I, I think there's this perception of Nelson and New Zealand in particular of um, pioneering kind of men and women made good. You know, everyone comes here from a hard life. They become pioneering farmers and everything's great ever after. Um, a lot of the, those stories did work out that way. Uh, for sure, but it wasn't always the case. So the people that the company in particular were recruiting, they they were looking for agricultural labourers in the first instance. Um, so they were recruiting people who worked in the fields, but there was also a mix of what we call mechanics or artisans as well, people who had kind of worked in the industrial mills, the looms, things like that. So you had a mix of um, agricultural labourers and more kind of industrial orientated workers. And a lot of them were leaving behind um, the workhouse. You know, uh, Francis Blinko in particular was one settler who, uh, working class immigrant, sorry, who came to Nelson. He almost missed his sailing because he had robbed the the workhouse. Um, Mm -hmm. He he was due to be transported to Australia and ended up coming to New Zealand instead. And there, there were some screening that the company did those agents would screen and find out the occupation, where they were from and things like that. Um, and luckily, because of that screening, we have these great registers held in the National Library, the Alexander Turnbull Library, that documents some of their backgrounds. But yeah, certainly a lot of them were leaving behind 
quite grimy industrial and hard agricultural laborer labor sorry to to start a new life across um quite unforgiving oceans and, and what was to them quite a new land um, it's very interesting um that part of it the idea behind having these two classes or maybe several classes we can delve into that a little bit later but when new zealand company came what what were the main reasons behind new zealand company's idea of okay we're not just going to be bringing in settlers who will be settling on land and then doing their own thing uh, what prompted um edward gibbon to decide that okay we need a labor class we need someone to uh come in and work the land and do other menial jobs um was it one of was it a thing of that the settlers didn't want to do that job or as you mentioned well most of the settlers were absent uh, settlers i guess you can say that but what kind of prompted this new type of capitalism that he was uh, going for oh that's a really good and complex question that a lot of historians and and um new zealand have been grappling with for a long time um you know on one one side of this coin you've got edward gibbon wakefield as this kind of uh ruthless venture capitalist who's um scheming these colonization plans from newgate prison um marx famously in capital kind of dismisses wakefield um and his scheme as as kind of just another venture capitalist kind of scheme uh and then on the flip side you have others writing about wakefield having witnessed other colonization schemes in canada the usa and australia and wanted to do it differently and in particular had a humanitarian bent which is why he wanted to be able to bring out laborers who would become landowner gentry eventually um I, the, the kind of the the jury still out on that one um and you could have a whole podcast about it but essentially mm. wakefields were an opportunity to do something different um and and made it happen in, in new zealand the the thing was in nelson that uh you know some of those so-called old world scenarios and settings ended up playing out in in the so-called new world and that's what i wanted to look at in this book yes um so just focusing now within nelson um how how is um a regular scene uh, a regular day looking like in the streets of nelson um who's working in the shops and um who's uh, the fancy people with big hats walking around and who are the la- how is it looking like the wild west or is it looking like a, a 18th century british city um i would probably say a mix of both and it's important to also footnote here that um tangata finua in nelson had been in nelson for a long time and also iwi or tribes coming down from the south of the north island into that area as well so there was trading happening with maori you had um schemes of a, a central township where uh, small plots were starting to be developed streets were being laid wooden houses um pubs were springing up um but also part of the scheme was that that you could buy a a country plot and part of the reason why 
um, Nelson started to look further afield into the Wido and things like that was because they were looking for flat land for these these plots. So it's a it's a mixture of kind of dusty streets, uh, wooden and mud houses springing up. Um, of course, you're getting a jail and a lockup springing up. You've got a port that's in development with Māori trading sites. You've got ships coming and going from Wellington, where the the kind of New Zealand company headquarters is based. Uh, and you've got the state starting to reach in as well, um, being based up around Auckland, but sending magistrates and things into Nelson. So it's yeah, it, it's a mix of kind of settlement starting to happen, but there's still an element of rawness. And and part of the work that these these men were put to was to dig these big drains and and build these roads out of the township towards uh, flat farmland, uh, especially the Waimea Valley, and that's one of the key sites of the struggle or, or revolt was those swampy grounds out in Waimea and also the port as well. Um, yes, so the you uh, you mention it. Uh... You mentioned gangs, right? So just for our listeners, in this context, what does it mean by gangs of laborers um, in the Nelson context? Sure. Um, gangs in this context was a, a a group of workers, a collective gang that worked together, you know, on the road or on the land. Um, they were basically a labor gang so it was working together as a group um, we have a connotation of word gangs in the in the modern sense with something completely different but in the 19th century uh, labor gangs was a was a key part of um, settler colonialism um, right from navvies and railway workers to farm hands to prison gangs which is what I'm studying at the moment yes um, and uh, it's interesting because um, I came in from a, a place of ignorance in terms of uh, the terms that were used in the book, and I, I, I had this image of gangs as we see in the, as we hear in the local zeitgeist of today. But as as I read and understood, ah, that's what it means. So it's it's, it's a bit of a collective that is uh, going. Yeah. Now, um, and you, and Nelson, yeah. you had well, certainly on the New Zealand Company works you'd have gangs of about 15 to 20 people, sometimes larger. Someone would be designated the, the lead gang man. He was often the person who would collect the pay. Um, and, and, and it made sense because these, these workers had an experience of working the land in gangs back in Great Britain as well. They had experience of the commons, of, of walking the bounds, working collectively in harvest. So it was just a kind of natural development of how labor happened in the early 19th century for men at least yes so you have come to the exact point of the question that i was about to ask you mentioned that the struggle was gendered um can you elaborate on that a little bit yeah sure so i mean what i wanted to focus on was obviously this revolt of the gang men the it was actually a sequence of events or riots that happened, and hopefully we can talk more about those. But the flip side of this work was that these men were family men. They'd come over to Nelson 
with their wives and children and a lot of their livelihood and survival was premised on the unpaid labor the gendered labor of their wives and there's a term for this that other scholars have used it's called making shift and that's the the work of women in the community making do with what they have to hand to basically support and reproduce labor power in a sense so although some of the record doesn't necessarily mention women in these marches or in these riots there is one small uh, extract where where one of the workers talks about amazonian women marching down to the the company pay office and demanding with their men folk the the money that was owed to them um, but behind the scenes women are playing a really important part in this role to basically reproduce uh the the the, the, the men folk to be able to get up and go do what they're doing Mm. So um, now we're at a point within Nelson. So, and what what is the trigger point that leads to uh, the revolt right at the start? Well, a lot of these workers, we have to remember, um, it, it's a time where unions uh, have only just been made legal. So right up until the eighteen thirties, the idea of combination was per- persecuted. You couldn't join together as a collective or form a union. Um, and, and one of the things that a lot of these people came to Nelson uh, was bringing hopes for, for a different type of working environment. So pretty much from the, from the get-go, workers are demanding eight or nine-hour days. Uh, they're, they're demanding an hour for lunch and various other um, working conditions. And, and some of the settlers complain about this. You know, they say it's really hard to to find a, a labourer who will kind of work for more than nine hours a day. As more and more workers start to arrive, that kind of balance of power shifts and you and the men are put on to relief work. And, of course, the company is spending a whole lot of money. Uh, you know, it's a welfare scheme. They're paying these men and their families both money and rations to survive, and it's in their interests uh, the shareholders back in the UK are asking the company to basically reduce as much as possible the rations and pay that they're giving to these men. And so by January 1843, when there's a, there's a hint of uh, a scheme of reduction, the, the gang men go on strike. And at this stage in 1843, there's about 319 men on these relief schemes. And so there's a strike in January they march down to the port from their houses and, and work sites and demand an audience with Arthur Wakefield, who kind of promises them that they're getting paid well, they can survive, it's not as bad as other places, and if you just work hard, I'm sure you'll be able to become landowners soon enough. And, and that strike lasts for about one or two days. There's different accounts of whether the that strike was peaceful or whether they were armed. And I was really interested in this. And they basically did prevent the reduction. Uh, Wakefield tries again to reduce the rations. Um, He manages to do so. There's another revolt, uh, a marching of the company office, this time in July 1843. And in between those two strikes, Arthur Wakefield has been killed in Wairo 
during the wairoa fray where um, a number of settlers clashed with Ngāti Tōrangatira over disputed land. And his replacement is a guy called Frederick Tuckett. And he's he doesn't have the same um, clout as Arthur Wakefield had with the workers. And when, uh, when Tuckett tries to reduce the wages even further, the office is raided in July by armed gang men. This is all kind of leading to the a, a really volatile scene. The company's trying to reduce rations. The men are trying to survive and fight for what's due, what they believe is due to them, what was guaranteed to them. And in August, the company decides to appoint a timekeeper, someone who will go out to the gangs where they're working, make sure they're doing the proper work, and actually measure their their performance in a way. And that's that's the kind of the straw that breaks the camel's back. These men nobody likes micromanagement. Yeah, exactly right. And, and, and you know, this is that area of what E. P. Thompson has written about in terms of the timekeeping and and the power of time and the watch in industrial capitalism. All of this is kind of mingling into the swampy ground of Nelson. And it seems to me from the, 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 the record and from what observers of the time wrote that the gangs had basically decided to enough was enough. And once this timekeeper was going to come and visit them, they'd resist. And that's exactly what happened. Um, it's um, the, uh, the story there um, in the marshes when they uh, they did throw one of the um, uh, the time uh, men and have a fight with them that is quite intriguing and I was quite um, I was quite absorbed uh, in that story so I would ask people to read read the book to get into these specific scenes as well now um, in in terms of um, the specific people involved uh, we talk about uh, George White and you said that he was not a well-liked person can you elaborate on that a little bit George in uh, within the settlers yeah. yeah so George White was the magistrate that was assigned by um, the fledgling state to be sent to Nelson and he was sent to Nelson after the wider fray in June where the other magistrate had been been killed so he's already replacing someone who has lost his life in a conflict with Māori. And George White does not kind of smooth the waters very well when he starts talking about the wider affray being justified, that the actions of Māori were justified, that the New Zealand company were a gang of 40 thieves. Um, he's kind of played up as this, this uh, radical, um, and the settlers basically refuse to acknowledge him when he arrives. Now, he's a really interesting guy because because of his views and because of his understanding of the power of working-class struggle, in a way, he's probably a little bit sympathetic to what's happening with the gang men, but he finds himself facing this powerful and organised body of men and their wives who aren't taking no for an answer. And so when you know the central riot of the book happens on the 26th of August... Um, he's kind of lined up. Um, the timekeeper's been thrown in the ditch. He's been stoned. He doesn't know who his co- the culprits are. He doesn't know the men well enough. So they decide that on payday, when the men march into town to receive their money, that George White, the magistrate, will, will jump out and, and capture 
the gang men that had thrown the timekeeper into into the ditch. So he's kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. He's he's got to police work, he's got to police the law, um, but he's also disliked by some of the the, the more well-to-do settlers in Nelson. Hmm. So he's essentially the sole representative of the the government. There are different representatives in terms of magistrates and custom mm. officers and stuff, but yeah, okay. it's all kind of bundled into that uh, into George White's role. Um, so we've we've touched on uh, the tongue of the Fenua um, and the Vaira Frey um, in our conversation. Um, there was a a specific headline that you used uh, in the book from the Nelson Examiner. Uh, which said um, that we are blessed with two privileged classes, Maoris and roadmakers. So um, can you uh, delve into a little bit of the attitudes of press towards Maoris and and the labor class, plus uh, what was the general attitude of Nelsonians towards uh, uh, towards Sangha the Fenua? Yeah, sure. That's a really good question. And there's been some amazing research done for the Waitangi Tribunal and by the Mitchells in Nelson around around Tangata Whenua in, in this area. Um, the the headlines were very interesting. So that that comment came out of the fact that when the workers went down to the company office in the port in August and basically de-arrested uh, their comrade from George White's grip using clubs and weapons, uh, a week later, some of the, the ringleaders were arrested and hauled before the courts. And not only did the, the gang men storm the courtroom, they forced the company and the magistrate to let them off, not only without a fine, but to pay them for the work that they hadn't done the week before. Mm. So there's this real sense of a power vacuum, or, or maybe better yet, that power is the hand and is in the hands of, of the workers. Um, George White is writing desperately to his authorities and Nelson for troops. He wants armed um, militia to be sent. He's trying to enrol special constables to to kind of help him fight against the workers here. So that's where that quote of the priv- privileged classes comes out. Um, this, the second aspect was after the wider fray, the over-disputed land, there was a commission that looked into that dispute and Fitzroy, the governor of the time basically came down on the side of Māori and said that the affray happened because of settler greed for land in a sense, and that they should have waited for the land dispute to be resolved by proper means. And so that didn't go well with some of the newspaper editorials and the settlers who are really keen to get onto the land and, and, and farm those those bigger plots. So yeah, you have this mix of, I think, fear that the settlement could be overrun by Māori. They're on tenterhooks. There's rumours that Te Raupiraha is coming south from Kapiti um, to, to drive them all out. And so that's the, that's the context of this particular so-called riot as well. There's, there's a lot of tension and, and fear happening. And one of the things I wanted to do with this book was to bring in the idea of emotion and, and not just look at things at a kind of high level political structure but also bring in the human element into the to the event as well 
Yes, um, and I, 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 I definitely uh, read that and felt that while reading the book because you have gone into specific stories of people as well and how they how they felt and what was the mood of uh, the nation in, in 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 Nelson at that at that time. Um, in terms of people who are um, n- were not involved uh, within within the riot um, in, in in Nelson, um, I'm talking about just regular settlers who are working um, or, or or just they're not involved in, in the labor uh, movement or they don't employ anyone. Um, do you get? Did you find anything in the archives about? What were they feeling? What was what was their mood towards the labor class? Yeah, it's a bit mixed. So one diary that I made use of held at the Alexander Turnbull Library was a diary of a company surveyor. So he's not necessarily directly involved for, for the uh, events that I depict, but he's capturing the sense of what's happening. And he's very disappointed that um these events are happening he kind of wants the company just to just to sort things out and and um but he's also sympathetic to the workers as well and at at one stage after the event where there are rumors of an impending nazi tour attack the settlers get together and form a committee of safety and they Mm. choose six of the gang men to be involved um, and there's arguments for and against this. Some are like, why would you put those same workers who are up in arms, literally, into a committee of defense? Their interests are not ours. But then the others are saying, well, actually, some of these guys have military backgrounds. They know the lay of the land. They know their way around Nelson. They'll be really useful in defending the settlement. So it's, it's, a, it's a real mix. And it's the same like any community when you start to drill down into it. Um, Things aren't so stratified as as we often think. So, coming to the actual event. Now, I didn't want to elaborate too much on the event because, you know, that's the main thesis and the main focus of of the book as well. Um, How much more you can share so that people are intrigued to go read a book? Because I was really excited about, about, about what actually happened on the day um, and then what it led to afterwards in terms of the changing of the company's uh, practices. Yeah, I think, you know, in my own personal experience of looking for histories of resistance, I've often looked overseas. Um, it's not something I've always associated with New Zealand history. And to come across this event so early on in, in New Zealand's Pākehā history at least, um, felt like a revelation to me and I just really wanted to look at it and at at the time as well I was reading a lot of um, English agricultural unrest kind of studies so things about the swing riots of the 1830s and working the land and stuff and I wanted to figure out was there a connection between these 1830 riots and what was happening in Nelson and that's part of the book. But essentially, as I mentioned earlier, um, briefly before, the men had thrown the timekeeper in the ditch. Uh, the timekeeper kind of said it was useless to go out and monitor these men. It wasn't safe to do so. Um, physical uh, violence and property was unsafe. And the only way we could punish these guys was when they came in to get paid. So they formed up as a body 
about 70 to 80 men of the three main gangs that were involved. And they marched down through the township out to Nelson Port, which is now Wakefield Quay, um, and, and confronted the company at the office. And as the timekeeper tried to pick out the men that had thrown him in the ditch, one of them is arrested by George White, the magistrate. And he kind of yells out. He says, come on, chums, they're taking me. And 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 the, some of the, the gang men charge into the office, clubs swinging, and essentially de-arrest uh, their, their comrade. And, and the, the magistrates and the company kind of give up. And then the men form up and march off giving three cheers. It's just phenomenal. And so that that was... You know the the background. It's like a scene from a it's like a scene from a from a movie, and I feel like George White must be feeling um, very emasculated because he has no power in this in this scenario. Yeah, and I mean that's he's writing him and others are writing that Nelson is a state in a state of anarchy, and you know that anarchy, anarchy and anarchism in Nelson eighteen forties. Are you kidding? It's it's not the type of image that I'd certainly been brought up with or read about. Um, so yeah, that's that was the focus, and I wanted to go back in time and 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 think about why these these men and their wives resorted to what they had done, um, what what traditions of revolt and protest were they drawing upon, and I I think that's the section of the book that I'm most proud of. It, I mean, it, I, it was it's really great to finally have a narrative of the events of what happened, and also as you mentioned it before of what happens afterwards, which mm. is the complete uh, recomposition of power in, in Nelson, uh, both in terms of class, but also in terms of the landscape. So because of the, the protest and because of the revolt, the, the company decided to completely throw out its scheme of withholding land to the laboring classes. Uh, and so they decide to allocate five acre plots to to the gang men some of them take it up some of them don't but it essentially drives a wedge a division into the body of workers because now you have a group who have a landed interest in nelson and yeah. and, and, and in a way it diffuses the the protests and, and even that has a tradition of um diffusing agricultural unrest back in Great Britain. And so, yeah, part two of the book really drills down to some of those backgrounds and histories of protest. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So um, it's quite, it's, um, you mentioned it is interesting that our regular histories have um, kind of ignored uh, going deep into these events that might have happened in different cities um, how important do you think, for, uh, for Nelson's history, of course, um, that these micro-histories are uh, elaborated more within the context of the nation, of the treaty, of what was happening? Um, why would they be more important than the general history? Well, I mean, I'm not sure if they're necessarily more important. I think they just add to that narrative and to... Th- to the picture of colonial life and, 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 you know, those general histories are really important. There's mm. some amazing work by Jim McAloon 
of a regional history of Nelson. Ruth Allen kind of wrote the history of the early settlement, and they have a lot of ground to cover. Um, and they do a good job at mentioning the struggle of these gang men. But by employing microhistory and, and diving deep into this particular event, but without neglecting the wider context, um, it, mm. it, it gives historians a really fruitful field of um, research because I think, well, I was surprised by how much I could find, you know, and, and you mentioned papers past. I couldn't have done this work without things like papers past and, you know, the genealogical work of family historians who have created databases and, and used ancestry and, and, and kind of painted a picture of family history. So I'm really grateful to those family historians for doing that type of work. But it, it does show us that there are moments in New Zealand's history that are just ripe for deeper analysis. And I think this event in Nelson really does shine a light on uh, settler colonialism, on labour, on divisions of um, class, and a really kind of heady time, a tumultuous time of settlement and and struggle for for what was a, a kind of a new world for them. And yeah, I, I wonder in the last section of of the book how other colonial events in New Zealand might look if we looked a bit deeper at class and at conflict and, and how those might have kind of played out in other colonising contexts. Yes. Um, so, um, I mean, I've, I can ask you question after question because I found this quite um, um, fascinating, the book. And... Um, a couple of things uh, just to finish off. Um, um, the just for my understanding and the people's understanding is, uh, what does it mean by piecework? When you know when when the uh, when com- the company's policies changed and we went into piecework, what would uh, what would it mean for our listeners? Sure. So piecework is a payment scheme in a way. Um, so in a modern day context it's kind of the difference between getting an hourly wage or being paid an annual um, salary mm-hmm. so rather than getting a kind of a flat fee for a week's worth of work um, piecework meant that the men would be paid for the effort they put in so, so and this had a, a quite a quite an important impact on the struggle because in, in one sense, it meant the work could be done in a couple of days. They'd get the same amount that they'd slog out for a week anyway. And then those men who were given land could use the rest of the week to cultivate and to to get onto the five-acre plots that the company had assigned them. Um, so, yeah, being paid piecework was basically getting paid for the direct amount of work that you were putting in. Hmm. So was there... Um... Then was, was there discontent for people who might have used um, the flat fee as a reason to maybe um, uh, just waste time a little bit? I'm not I'm not uh, casting dispersions, but uh, I'm just saying that it, it becomes uh, more accountable and it becomes more transparent. Um, yeah. as compared to the flat rate. Yeah, sure. I mean, the, the company had complained all along about how little work these men were being 
what, what how how little work was being done out on the swamps and interestingly enough when the piecework scheme comes in and land is offered up by the company it's interesting to me that not everyone took it up um mm. quite a few of the gang men were quite happy to just ride the company getting their kind of weekly fortnightly pay they weren't interested in land and again that tells me something quite interesting that yes there was a strong desire for a lot of these working class immigrants to come out and become landowners but there was a fragment of those working class immigrants who that wasn't their desire um, they were quite happy to ride the company um, and then there was a whole segment of workers who simply left Nelson as well so yeah it, it does tell us quite a bit about um, what some of those working class aspirations were in Nelson in, in that kind of early colonial time. Um, so last um, last question. Um, so what happens to um, the company, the New Zealand company, in, in, in the future? Yeah, and the, the company essentially goes bankrupt. Um, and you've got the working class immigrants in Nelson pretty much surviving on fern root. There's, there's not much food. Um, things are scarce. It's, it's pretty dire straits for the, the men and their families. And the company's gone bankrupt. And that plays quite a significant role in diffusing the, the revolt as well. There, there is one moment in 18, I think it's early, late in 1843 or 1844, where a group of the workers storm Nelson town and they're ready to take food and supplies by force if necessary. And they're met on the road by the new police officer who had sent out a message to the store owners to close up shops because these armed men were coming. So, but essentially that was kind of the last gasp of some of those those militants that were still hanging out um the the bankruptcy of the company changed things completely and that's another reason why that diffusion of the protest with allocation of land was so important because it meant a lot of these workers had taken up land and could you know scrape by by living off the land and through the work of making shift of their their wives and the support of maori as well but yeah, a lot of people left Nelson. Um, Sue McCliskey is just doing her thesis at the moment on the Nelson immigrants and their mobility. She's been a really massive help to this research because she's compiled a whole lot of amazing spreadsheets. And she's looking at that aspect in particular of people just left. So yeah, the, mm. the bankruptcy did have a quite a strong impact on Nelson and also across New Zealand and its other uh, settlement schemes too. Well, um, thanks for that. I, I have I have more questions, and um, but I would uh, delve into more research and go into uh, past papers um, as well. Um, it's um, just for the listeners. It, it's a fascinating account uh, of a time and place, and um, it really is uh, quite gripping. So thank you. Thank you for your work. Um, now what's, um, what's on the table now after, after this? Yeah. So the history of a riot, as I mentioned, was an in-between work between finishing dead letters. Um, and my new book, which is called blood and dirt prison labor and the making of New Zealand 
Uh, it's forthcoming with Otago University Press. So I've been looking at uh, an, a, a different gang of workers, uh, the prison gang, the chain gang, and how they've shaped New Zealand's uh, landscape uh, and infrastructure in the 19th century. So that's hopefully coming out next year, and it's looking at prison labour right from the Hohi Mission Station in 1814 through to the prison farms and the forestry schemes of the early 1900s. Fantastic. So where can oh, oh, where can our listeners find you um, in terms of getting your previous work and getting this book? Yeah, um, I have a website. It's jared-davidson.com. Otherwise, I'm on Twitter, Anarchivist. Um, but the history of a riot, you can visit the Bridget Williams book website and there's links there for both the ebook and the physical book. And I, I would just mention this is part of an amazing BWB text series, which I'm just so grateful to be a part of. Um, you know, at, at $14 or $15, it's such an accessible uh, format for history to be told in. So, yeah, I'm really grateful to BWB, and I hope um, the listeners will, will support BWB and the, the larger text series. Great. Thanks, uh, Jared. Um, and uh, thank you for giving us your time and the uh, in-depth diving in of uh, the, the co-pop of the book. Um, hopefully, we'll get you back uh, for your new work and um, have a fantastic week. Thank you. Thanks, Ed.